Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is David Bernstein. David is a professor at George Mason University Law School and the executive director of their Liberty and Law Center. His new book is called Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. Topics covered in this episode include the definition of race, the historical origins of America's big five racial and ethnic categories, which are Asian American, Black, Hispanic, American Indian, and white. We discuss the problems with all of these categories and how those problems manifest in race-based affirmative action programs and race-based social spending in general. We discuss the phenomenon of racial fraud trials where judges have to determine the race of individuals seeking to qualify for certain programs. We discuss the malleability of racial identity and how commonly our racial identities can change in response to incentives. And finally, we discussed the prospect of what David calls a separation of race and state. I really enjoy this conversation, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, David Bernstein. All right, David Bernstein, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks so much for having me, Cole. So we're going to get into your excellent new book, which I really enjoyed reading so much, uh, and, and congratulations on it. It's called Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. And we'll get to a lot of what's in this book and wider conversations around racial classifications, how the government organizes the boxes we all have to check in American society and how that organizes our lives. But before we get into all of that, how did you come to this subject and what's your academic background? So I'm a law professor. Uh, I graduated from Yale Law School in 1991. I've read a lot about the history of race and constitutional law in sort of other contexts. So this was somewhat a natural progression. But specifically, I mean, I just, it's sort of natural curiosity, I think. I, you know, one great thing about being a professor is that you get paid to research and write about things that you just find interesting. So I had, there were a few incidents in uh, my life where the boxes sort of came up. And for example, I mentioned one in Classified in the book. We had a nanny who was from Peru and she was applying for a green card, which I was helping her with. And first in current way we do things, we they asked her whether she's Hispanic or not. So that was easy. Uh, she's Hispanic. And then they asked for race. And she says, I, you know, I need in Spanish to me. I need help with this. I don't know what to write. And I say, well, are you white? Eres Blanca? She's like, no, no soy Blanca. Are you, well, you're not black. I mean, she didn't look black uh, in what we call, you know, looking black. She didn't look like she had African descent. So I said, pero no, tu no, tu no es negra. She says, no, 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 no soy negra. Soy mestiza. All right, mm-hmm. I'm uh, mestiza. I'm what they call a mixed race, Peruvian, you know, white and indigenous in, in Latin America. Well, of course, we don't have a category like that. So there's nothing for her. And there was, I don't even think there was an other button. So it was, I said, oh, that's weird. We don't actually have a classification that actually fits 
our own racial identity and, and the racial identity classification we use in the U.S. don't match what they use in other countries. Similarly, we had a president of our university who was from Spain and he appeared on the cover of Diversity in Higher Education. And it's like Angelo, I'm blanking his last name, but Angelo, whatever, the president of George Washington University. like, huh, Spanish, but you know, he's European, Mediterranean European, just like an Italian or Portuguese or a Greek. Why is he in diversity in higher education as a minority president of university when he's basically otherwise white? So a few things like that. I said, you know, I just started doing some research and decided to write a law review article about it and see what I could come up with, what the law, whether to what extent are these classifications dictated by law? How does the law deal with them? Because I, I assume that the reason we have the particular classifications had to do something with federal law and civil rights law and whatnot. And what I discovered was that while most Americans think that racial uh, classifications are a matter of self-identity, like if I consider myself self-Hispanic or Native American, that's what I am. That's not entirely true. I mean, it's true that if you check a box on the census form or on a mortgage application, it's very unlikely anyone's ever going to ask you why you checked it and how you consider yourself. But on the other hand, it is true that there are official def- classifications with official definitions that the federal government came up with in the 1970s. That's where we get the boxes on the forms. And that sometimes in the affirmative action context, especially in government contracting, if someone, say, puts down that they're Hispanic, but they don't, quote unquote, look Hispanic or have a Hispanic last name, someone may actually question them and ask for documentation and evidence that they are, in fact, uh, Hispanic. And there are a bunch of cases. There, I think I'm the first person to actually write about almost all of these cases mm-hmm. where administrative agencies and courts actually adjudicate whether someone is really Black or really Hispanic or really Native American. I think most people, including myself, before I did this research, think, well, that's, that's like 100, you know, we don't have race trials in this country anymore. No one's, no one's checking whether someone is one-eighth Black or whatever, but they actually are, which was quite a shock to me, really, and something that I thought deserved more attention. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll we'll get to that. First, I want to ask a deceptively easy question, which is actually outside the scope of your book, but relevant, which is, what is race to begin with? Wow. Uh, (laughs) That's an easy one. Um, (laughs) So that's a great question. And it depends, you know, I'm not like an expert on the history and anthropology of race, but my understanding from the research I did for this book was that basically scientists and anthropologists, basically the 19th century, divided the world into different spheres and said people from Europe and nearby areas are Caucasian, people from East Asia are what we now call Asia, but they would use the now offensive term Mongoloid. People from Africa are uh, what they would call Negroes, what they would say, and wasn't really clear exactly where Native Americans fit. And those were your basic uh, categories. And in the United States, this was basically correlated with color. So, right, we have basically black for people of African descent, yellow for people of Asian descent, red for people of indigenous descent, and white for people of European or Middle Eastern descent. And those classifications, you know, I think it's fair to say there's a consensus among experts nowadays that they weren't really based on more than very crude classifications based on how people looked and the prejudices of the day. But they became really ingrained in our society such that when the government itself uh, was classifying people for the census and whatnot, they often used very similar kinds of classifications. And then when they formalized them, even after the civil rights era, they actually stuck pretty closely, not exactly, but pretty closely to these historically dubious kinds of racial definitions. But if you ask me what is race, you know, I would actually agree with those who say it's primarily a social construct. There is obviously some correlation 
between what we call race and people's genetic origins. But genetics, it turns out, is much, much, much more complicated than these racial classifications are. You could divide Europeans, for example, into eight different basic genetic groups. While we think of in the United States, people of African descent as all being quote-unquote black or African-American and think of it as sort of a coherent singular category, Africa actually has the most genetic diversity of any continent in the world because you know humans, uh, most scientists think humans started there, say, the most time to have genetic diversity. Mm-hmm. So, and within Africa itself, even among what we call black Africans, Ethiopians and Somalis, for example, are have incredible number of internal ethnic groups, some of whom are more related to other black Africans, some of whom are more related to Arabs and Jews. Uh, so it's actually very complicated. So mm-hmm. we have folk notions of race, scientific notions of race. And then I think actual, um, what the evidence actually shows is that race is not really that useful in a scientific or anthropological sense. But instead, we should be looking genetic clusters. And of course, the closer people were living, the closer one group lives to the other, the more likely they were to be genetically related. But that makes a continuum rather than sharp differential between people like in Africa versus people in Europe. Right. The line that I've used and the way I think of this is that race is a social construct inspired by a biological reality, much in the way that the concept of a month is a just an arbitrary number of days, but it's sort of loosely inspired by the idea, the time it takes the month to complete the lunar cycle, sorry, the moon to complete the lunar cycle. So race in that sense, we have these categories that are loosely inspired by a fact, which is that different groups migrated out of Africa 50,000 years ago and uh, evolved to demonstrate all of the differences that account for why I look different than you, you know, why my skin is this way and your skin is that way. And we take that fact and then build these socially constructed categories inspired by it, but not actually precisely tracking it. And your book is like a, is a reservoir of example after example after example in which the social construct so clearly reveals itself to be absurd and completely arbitrary. And yet it really makes a difference which box you are able to check if you're a business owner applying for a government contract, which can be very lucrative. If you are applying to a college, if you are a policeman or a firefighter, many of the cases in your book pertain to those professions applying for a promotion and there has been, there's a program to promote minorities, right? So all of these things really make a difference in people's lives and whether you qualify them hinges on facts about your life and about the way these things have been defined that are totally arbitrary and totally depart from any whatever is real that population geneticists are studying. There's two different issues, and especially I have a chapter on how race is used in medicine, especially comes up there. One issue is, does race itself mean anything? And as you suggested, and as I suggested earlier, there is some correlation between race and genetics. It's a very crude and imperfect one. So it's not, not something you really want to rely on for anything important. But at least, obviously, uh, we could t- generally tell the difference between someone who looks like they have a, of African descent and someone who looks like they're of European descent. But in the case of, there's a second issue of, well, once, how does the U.S. classify people by race? And that gets even more arbitrary and absurd. And it's not even crude. It's just wildly weird and, and ridiculous in a lot of the so-called racial categories. So for a variety of reasons, for example, the Asian American category includes everyone from people who live up to the western border of Pakistan and, the Phil- and uh, China all the way to the Philippines. Now, Pakistanis and, and Chinese people have nothing to do 
in common with each other, really, and in turn have very little in common with Filipinos. Just if you wanted to use the old-fashioned anthropological racial categories, Indians and Pakistanis and so forth, South Asians or Caucasians, there's a lot of genetic diversity within Southeast, within South Asia. East Asians are a separate group, and most Filipinos are Austronesians and are more related to people from Tahiti and whatnot in Hawaii than they are to uh, other Asians. But we just lump them all together. They have different religions, different cultures. They look different. They have different histories. They often have mutual enmity over the centuries with each other. But the U.S. government just said, okay, you're all Asian. And in the United States, they have different levels of socioeconomic success, different places, different geographic concentrations, and just sort of lumping them all together in a category of Asian. It, the Asian, you know, using race in general is problematic, but then you have these weird categories that aren't even racial categories, that just government creates pseudo-racial categories. Yeah, so I want to talk about the history of how the big five racial categories came to be in America. And we should just take a moment to recognize that we tend to take the categories we're born into for granted as if there's something normal about them. But anytime we hear how race and ethnicity has been categorized in the past or in other places, we get this distinct feeling of how just insanely weird the categorization is. But we fail to bring that sense of weirdness to our modern received categories, even though they're actually just as weird. So I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but there used to be distinctions between, say, an octoroon and a quadroon. This is someone with like one-eighth Black ancestry and one-fourth Black ancestry. And these categories and, and words seemed totally normal and not humorous at all, just as normal as Black and Asian and Hispanic sound today. But we look back at them and they sound totally absurd. So I want to invite, as we talk about these categories, I want to invite the listeners to try to conjure up that feeling of weirdness You know, imagine that you're kind of, you know, an anthropologist from Mars visiting America and just studying from afar how we categorize things as we go through this. But so with that said, can you give, I know there's a very long history here, but maybe a a somewhat shortened summary of how the big five categories that is Asian and Pacific Islander, American Indian or Alaskan Native, Black, white, and Hispanic, um, how these five categories crystallized between the 50s and roughly 1977. Sure. And let me say that now that I've written this book, the categories I sort of took for granted because we all just use them every day without thinking about now all seem weird to me, which makes my life a little bit more weird and complicated because I'll see things like people from India, you know, on Twitter saying you white people about something. And I, and I know, historically speaking, it was just as, you know, it was really just happenstance that people from India wound up being classified as Asian rather than white. And But for other, but for a really random historical circumstance, it would be like other people would be berating the Indians for being among the white group rather than vice versa. But in any event, what happened in the 1950s, we obviously had a history of race and racism in the U.S. We historically had Obviously, the African-American or, you know, historically the, the Negro or colored classification, the white classification, that was the most important one, obviously, given slavery, then Jim Crow and so forth. Once Asian immigration started, we, of course, added on the census a category first for Chinese and for Japanese and then also for Filipinos, which were the three major groups. And after World War II, I think there was a sense, wow, you know, we are the civil rights movement is really getting to gear. We're starting to want to limit discrimination. And we see what happened in the U.S. with Jim Crow, with uh, Japanese internment, with Chinese, anti-Chinese legislation. We see the Holocaust happening after, you know, the Germans had 
just like we had our octoroons and quadroons. They had their mishlings and all that for Jews. Maybe we should just abolish these things altogether. And I think that's where the intellectual trends are running. That was considered the liberal, progressive, egalitarian ideal. What happened was in the 1950s, the U.S. government started uh, trying to enforce anti-discrimination executive orders against federal government contractors. And there's a lot of defense contracts in the 50s, a lot of money flowing into contracts. And to their credit, the government officials at the time said, we don't want high, you know, all the, these big companies that we're contracted with to be excluding uh, black workers and Jewish workers and so forth. So they, uh, presidents passed executive orders and they asked the contractors to name, to list how many employees they have of each group. And for a variety of reasons, Jews were originally on, but they dropped off. It was partly African-Americans, obviously, had suffered the most discrimination. So there's two things going on. The first thing that was going on was, which groups do we consider analogous to African-Americans? And there was a case to be made that Mexican-Americans and Puerto Rican-Americans, even though they uh, were historically actually put in the white category, actually many of them were dark-skinned and suffered at least somewhat similar types of discrimination, at least in parts of the country. So that we should add... Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans, and Asians had obviously suffered a lot of discrimination as well, including exclusion from citizenship and immigration. And so they were just sort of thrown in without much thought. Jews and Catholics were originally considered, but they were put out partly because of the lack of analogy to African-Americans, the lack of uh, clear differences in complexion and appearance. But also, one thing that I really didn't emphasize enough in the book, but it's occurred to me as I've been talking to people about the book, is that at the time, it was considered offensive, anti-civil rights, anti-egalitarianism, an invitation to discrimination to ask people about their race, to ask people to fill it out. So instead, the way civil rights laws were enforced for the first, let's say, 20 years of the civil rights era, from the early 50s to the early 70s, was visual identification. I'm the employer. I don't know. I only ask my employees who's, suspect, who's Mexican, who's Black, who's Asian. I just look at them. And if you're trying to put Jews and Catholics in, that would be a problem because you can't tell by looking. I uh, sometimes could tell by last name, but that's kind of inexact. So for those two reasons, uh, basically any of the white ethnic or religious minorities that could have been included were excluded. And we wound up with, on these government forms, very similar rules to what we have today. We wound up with uh, a white category, but then would have been called a Negro category, which is now the Black African-American category, an Oriental category, which is now Asian. American category and classification for Mexican-American and Puerto Ricans, which morphed into the Hispanic category. Now, I mentioned Hispanics were originally considered to be uh, white, but again, Mexican, you know, we added Mexicans and Puerto Ricans, and then when affirmative action program started, they were sort of included. Uh, the Ford Foundation sort of made a big project to sort of ensure that Mexican-Americans would be organized as a minority group. And then, the, you know, the Hispanic is really kind of a weird category because it's an ethnic officially classification and not racial. And there was a real confusion as how to deal with these folks in terms of government statistics collecting. Or should we call them Spanish-Americans, uh, Spanish surname? Should we have a separate classification for Mexicans and Puerto Ricans? After all, they live in completely different parts of the country and they have different backgrounds. They, Puerto Ricans have more African ancestry, Mexicans have more indigenous ancestry, should we add Cuban-Americans who are mostly self-identified and look Caucasian white as well? And essentially, um, this is actually one of the things that led to the government deciding to formalize these classifications. Uh, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare was getting data, especially Americans of Spanish-speaking background, where every sub-agency was using its own definition. Some were only reporting Mexicans, some, you know, so forth and so on. And 
Nixon had a big influence, ironically, on this. Nixon thought, said to himself two things. First of all, he didn't like the radicalism in the Puerto Rican-American and Mexican-American community. There was the Chicano activism of the time, and there was these Puerto Rican independence activists who were hijacking airplanes and bombing Congress and so forth. And he thought, hey, we should have some kind of pan- national identity that'll make them feel more American and less attached to their homelands. He also said to himself, and if we're going to do that and they're going to be eligible for affirmative action, well, those folks vote Democrat. Cuban Americans vote Republican. How can we leave out Cuban Americans? So Cuban Americans were added. And once you add Cuban Americans, you're no longer making a racial distinction anymore because again, Cuban Americans of all uh, the big Latino groups in the US, Cuban Americans are by far the ones with the most European ancestry. So once you include them, you're basically including everybody of Spanish speaking origin, including people from Spain. And they just set up these committees. Let's figure out exactly what the classification should be, how they should be defined. No one really thought this was especially important as far as I could tell. There was very little media coverage of this, very little controversy. It was done not surreptitiously, but without any real publicity. It was done in a very informal manner. They just sort of took volunteers from different agencies. to Hey, figure out what we should call people from Spanish-speaking backgrounds. And let us know. And then it was published in the Federal Register. There were some comments. Indian American, one Indian American group got upset when they found out that Indian Americans following what a lot of agencies were already doing were going to be classified as white. They said, no, we want to be classified as Asian. No one really objected. There were very few Indian Americans, so no one really cared. So they added that group. And that's basically, and so basically we wound up, and this is, I think, uh, something that really struck me with the book. We wound up after, you know, in sort of a non planned way, recreating the traditional racial categories we have in the U.S. We created the African-American Black category, which is defined as anyone who is descended from the Black races of Africa. So not all Africans are African-American, only the ones from the Black races. But then as long as you have any Black ancestry, so it's like a one-drop rule, you count as African-American. The Asian-American classification, after the Indian lobby group was successful in adding them to the Asian classification, completely recreated exactly the rules that we had for who is Asian, who gets excluded from the U.S., and who can't become a citizen. So the old racist classification that divided things at the end of Pakistan, so Iranians are not Asian, Afghans are not Asian, but they're white, but then Indians and Pakistanis are Asian, uh, was recreated. We brought back sort of the Native American classification, again, based on tribal affiliation and culture. So we sort of wound up uh, inadvertently creating, recreating the old system with one major exception, which is now we added this Hispanic category of people who are primarily classified as white previously are now somewhere in the netherworld between white, because they are, because they could be any, of any race, but they're also not quite a um, racial minority because they're listed as an ethnic rather than racial minority. So one really interesting historical fact here, when you think of moments in history where things really could have gone one way or another, after World War II, you have the world, the developed world, aghast at the revelation of the Holocaust. And you have the new term, what was then a new term called racism, really enter the lexicon and inspire activists in America, such as A. Philip Randolph and then later Martin Luther King and, and so forth. And there were two different ways that countries reacted to this. So a country like France reacted to this by formally codifying that race, racial categorizations are simply illegal in all cases. We're not going to ask for your race on the census even. We're not going to count what race you are. 
in some cases, it goes so far as if you're an academic that wants to study the racial breakdown of a certain sector of society, you can't even get access to those statistics because it violates this just absolute red line in the sand that we are now drawing around this concept of race. It's just harmful inherently is the idea. And we're not going to go down this whole road, right? And by the way, France is the most famous example of this, but I think it's true that most European countries do not ask for your race or ethnicity on the census. Certainly uh, the UK does, Canada, America, Australia asks for your ethnic, for your ethnicity, I think, but not your race. But most other European countries, you know, Spain, France, Finland, Germany, Austria, uh, Switzerland, Sweden, they do not ask for your race or ethnicity on the census to this day. So basically, many places went in the direction of not recognizing race as a valid category just on its face. And America went very much in the opposite direction. And that was not, I don't think that that was foretold. So for example, uh, in the original March on Washington movement started by A. Philip Randolph in, in the 40s, at the top of their list of demands, I think the quote exactly is, the abrogation of every law that makes a distinction based upon race, color, creed, or national origin, which is to say the destruction of every law that makes such a distinction in principle. And even as late as the early 1960s, as you mentioned, the position of the NAACP and the ACLU tended towards not acknowledging the racial distinction, towards the government not acknowledging racial distinctions full stop, and later in the 60s morphed towards recognizing these categories so as to remediate things. But it's interesting historically to see that in response to the horrors of the Holocaust and a newfound consciousness in the modern world about racism, different countries that view ourselves as like not so different in the grand scheme of things, such as America and France, ended up going in totally opposite directions vis-a-vis the importance of racial categorization itself. Yeah, I mean, even uh, one country I'm familiar with, Israel, which makes religious distinctions, Israel, like the Jewish population comes from over 100 different countries. If you try to get data on how are Jews with origins from Iraq doing compared to Jews with origins in Poland, no one keeps that data as considered offensive to ask mm-hmm. that. At least within, within each religious group, we're all supposed to be uh, part of the same polity. But in fairness, you know, I think there's two things going on in the United States. One is that it was really hard to imagine in the 50s or even early in the early 70s, the racial distinctions really ever going away. I mean, we at the time, we had even significant distinctions within the white group. As I like to tell audiences when I'm talking about this, if I were giving the same kind of talk or having a conversation with you decades ago about this kind of thing, right now, most people say, well, here's a white professor who's talking about these racial classifications. But 40 years ago, let's say, or 50 years ago, people would say, oh, Bernstein looks like Jewish, Jewish guy, right? And mm-hmm. it, even if they weren't hostile to Jews, that would just, you just would have noticed those distinctions or Italian guy or Polish guy in the way that we don't really notice anymore. So it wasn't even that easy to imagine the uh, white ethnic distinctions going away. 1958, only 4% of Americans, this is always, this statistic always just floors me. And every time I repeat it, I have to tell, I always say, I always say, you know, not 40, not 14. of Americans approved of interracial marriage. Mm -hmm. Four. I mean, now it's like 94. I mean, this is just an unbelievable change in a short, uh, relatively short historical period. So, you know, the, there was a, and even in the seventies, it would have been something like 30%. So now I think it's possible to imagine given the rates of interracial marriage and so forth, uh, even the African-American community, one could imagine it, a a future multi-ethnic, multi-racial American identity. that's not dependent on race. I, 
still, I think it was hard for people to imagine it, that they thought the racial distinctions were more or less permanent. And given their permanence, we should recognize them so we could deal with whatever the implications are in terms of you know, inequality and so forth. Relatedly, once you have all these civil rights laws, you have to enforce them somehow. And two things happen. First of all, the government decided that in the employment context and the educational context, you could prove discrimination at least sometimes by statistical disparities. Well, you can't know if there are statistical disparities unless you actually count people by race. And relatedly, the Voting Rights Act, which is under, I think, you know, people don't think about this much, but uh, Voting Rights Act, I think the most important piece of civil rights legislation of all to make sure everyone, no one, people don't have a voice in the political system and no one's going to pay attention to their needs. Voting Rights Act depends on how do you know if some county in Georgia or Mississippi is suppressing the black vote? Well, you have to actually know who's black and count up how many voters there are of each race and see what the percentages are look like they're reasonable for actual voters, right? That's what be the, the first thing you do. And there are a lot of subtle ways of discouraging or prohibiting or, mm-hmm. or threatening people with regard to voting without actually, you know, standing there with a, you may not vote sign and with a policeman yeah. next to you. So we had the, both of those things. I think Europe was less of, you know, didn't have you know, race-based slavery and so forth in Europe itself, found it with less entrenched racism of that sort, found it easier to imagine a post-racial or non-racial world. And also they didn't pass all the civil, they didn't have the same impetus to pass the civil rights legislation. And, you know, it's, it, it, it occurs to me as I'm just speaking to you now, you know, the European countries, they, you know, we think of the European countries as having the big governments because they have all the taxes and stuff and they manipulate things through redistribution. In the U.S., we actually went a lot more towards, well, let's, let's have a pluralistic system where different groups fight it out and the groups that have historically faced discrimination, now that they have political power, they should mm-hmm. be allowed to organize just like labor unions and so forth and also get a piece of the uh, political action that way. So we have less big, less quote unquote big government in terms of general redistribution, but we have more big government in terms of the government will ask you your race and distribute or not distribute benefits accordingly. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay, so I want to go through all five of these categories and highlight the specific reasons why they're arbitrary or perhaps don't make sense. And if you will, I just want to go through them sort of systematically one at a time. So let's start with Asian American Pacific Islander category. It's not obvious to create a category based on a continent. And even once you admit that, the category as we have it isn't coincident with the boundaries of Asia, the continent geographically. So let's start there and then and, and discuss that category a little bit. Sure. You already mentioned uh, some of the reasons why it's arbitrary. One reason why we have this sort of continent-based classification is because back in the in 1970, around when the classifications were ossifying, population that we would now identify as Asian American in the United States was less than 1%. So Partly people weren't really thinking about it that much because it wasn't really that significant demographically, but also partly like, well, we can't, if we start counting Chinese and Japanese and South Asians and Filipinos all separately, you know, that's a lot more effort because they're such small groups. Mm-hmm. No one was anticipating this huge wave of immigration from Asia we've had in the meantime. I already mentioned, you know, like not everyone in Asia is Asian American, Middle Easterners are not, Afghans are not, Armenians are not, Kazakhs are not. So uh, it is this weird dynamic where you could be a Pashtun family who one side, one half of the family lives on the Afghan side of the river. The other half lives on the Indian or Pakistani side of the river. And the Pakistani side is Asian American and the Afghan side is white, even though they have exactly you know, the same grandparents, let's say their cousins. So that's weird. 
And in terms of public policy, it becomes weird because these groups are really, I mean, China itself, different Chinese immigrant groups have different levels of socioeconomic success, different Indian groups, different Pakistani groups, because they're so internally diverse. And then you come to, they come to the United States uh, and you know, Indian Americans from Asia are the wealthiest of all measurable ethnic groups, uh, most educated, highest income. But there are other groups like Hmong uh, refugees from Cambodia or Malaysians or Burmese smaller groups that have significantly below the average socioeconomic achievement on average. And they're all just sort of lumped together. So people say, oh, well, Asians are quote unquote overrepresented in college admissions. And therefore we have to, you know, for diversity purposes, we can't have quote too many of them. Actually, what they're generally saying is that they, that uh, Indian Americans and Chinese Americans, and to a lesser extent, Japanese and Korean Americans uh, are well overrepresented compared to their percentage of the population, but not all Asians, it's not to say Vietnamese or Cambodians or other groups. So that's a little weird. The other interesting thing about the Asian Pacific Islander classification, we still think of there being an Asian Pacific Islander classification, and you mentioned it, but actually, in 1997, the Asian Pacific Islander category was officially broken up into two separate categories. Asian American and then Pacific Islanders uh, and Native Hawaiians were, were also uh, separated out. And the reason for that's kind of interesting. It goes along with what I was just saying. You know, if you go to Hawaii, if you, I, we love going to Hawaii. It's our favorite place uh, in the world, really, my wife and I. And we still go there all the time. If you go to Hawaii, like, you know, there are a lot of Native Hawaiians, a lot of Samoans and other Polynesian groups there. And they tend to do not as well economically and uh, educationally as white and Asian, other Asian groups in Hawaii. And they found that when they were applying to colleges in California and elsewhere from Hawaii, and they were being treated as part of the Asian classification and therefore facing discrimination as an overrepresented minority, instead of getting affirmative action, even though their mm. socioeconomic indicators were were uh, below average as, as a group. So they lobbied, the Native Hawaiians lobbied to be added to the Native American, American Indian category, and the American Indians didn't want that because they didn't want to share the resources they get from the Bureau <laughs> of Indian Affairs with them. So the compromise was, well, we'll make a separate category for Native Hawaiians, but it's too small, so we'll add in other Polynesian groups to Pacific Islanders. Uh, so we also have this additional arbitrariness, as I mentioned and classified in the book, that people from the Philippines are literally people from Pacific Islands because it's an archipelago, but they're not Pacific Islanders officially. Only Polynesian groups are included in that. So there's all sorts of, you know, it, it doesn't make a, a hell of a lot of sense to put all these different groups uh, in the same Asian category. It would make even less sense, I guess, with the Pacific Islanders, but why, you know, a Native Hawaiian is in a separate group from other Native groups like Alaska Natives is just pure politics. And, you know, if you go to college, and one thing I learned, I, I was wondering about this, and I learned it doing some research on the web, if you go to almost any major college's website, there's actually at least two different Asian Americans groups. There's the Asian American group. There's the South Asian group. Because again, they don't really have much in common. But then if they have foreign students, a lot of foreign grad students and whatnot, the foreign Pakistani and Indian students will not be in the same club together because they're, yes. they have these entities from So they'll right. be a separate Indian student organization, a separate Pakistani one. So they don't, you know, so add... Ultimately, another interesting thing I, I learned uh, in this research is most Asian Americans don't call, consider themselves Asian American, not even as a secondary identity. So it's not even they say, yeah, I'm Chinese American, but I'm also Asian American. No, I don't want to call myself Asian American. Only about 38% of Asian Americans accept the, that, that moniker at all, except that's the form, even though they have to fill out the forms and check that box all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, at the very least, you could say of the Black identity that the majority of 
officially black Americans like myself would also colloquially and just if asked, identify as such, which means there's some sociological truth at the very least to the category. You, you can't even say that of Asian Americans and we'll get to Hispanics later. So, so, okay. So that's Asian American and also Pacific Islander and Hawaiian. Let's talk about the American Indian Alaskan native category. Well, so I have a whole chapter on American Indians and, and federal law does call them generally American Indians rather than Native Americans. So I'm just going to go with that just to be linguistically precise as to what the classification is. So there are one of the fascinating things about the American Indian classification we have a lot of laws that single out American Indians because the Bureau of Indian Affairs is a special government agency that is dedicated to, at least officially, uh, they don't, it doesn't always work out that way, but at least officially dedicated to the well-being of American Indians. So there are all these laws that provide health services, educational services through the Bureau of Indian Employment, preferences through the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And on the census, it's basically self-identified. But for the purpose of all these federal laws, the different laws and regulations often define who an American Indian is in contradictory or, or conflicting ways. So some laws say that you have to be a tribal member. And tribal membership varies dramatically from tribe to tribe. Some require you to have one, pa- one parent, some one father, some one mother. It's maternal or paternal. Some, as long as you have someone who was on the rolls 150 years ago as a member of the tribe as an ancestor, like the Cherokee, you could, tra- you could claim membership. So some is ancestry, and the ancestry itself diverges dramatically from tribe to tribe. Some laws say that you have to have one quarter Indian blood quantum. And this was a shock to me. I didn't know there was such a thing officially under the law as Indian blood quantum, much less that the Bureau of Indian Affairs actually will issue you a certificate telling you what your Indian blood quantum is if you're one quarter uh, or more so that you could be eligible for these various things. I mean, it sounds so much like the Nuremberg laws to me that I was like, wow, Mm -hmm. I can't believe the government actually issues these things that no one seems to even notice. Other laws say either in addition to or instead of those other qualifications, that anyone who is considered an Indian by the government is an Indian. So that's kind Kind of of circular. Circular, (laughs) right? Uh, And some say that it's determined by cultural affiliation, whatever that means, if you're culturally affiliated to an Indian tribe. And some say anyone who the Bureau of Indian Affairs has officially recognized as an Indian. So there's all, and there's some law, there's a law, for example, that requires for certain federal crimes government like 180 years ago passed a law to say for certain federal crime, certain crimes, if you're an Indian, you have to be tried in federal court rather than state court. I'm not an expert mm-hmm. in the origin of the law. I think it was actually to protect the Indians from local discrimination to give mm-hmm. them federal protection. But in the end, it means that whether the government, if you're charged with a crime, it actually wound up being the opposite because federal law is typically nowadays much stricter about sentencing penalties and so forth. So right. a lot of people don't want to be considered Indians. And the question is, well, who is an Indian for purposes of this law? And it's a common law process. And there's all these decisions from all different federal circuits about what makes you an Indian for purposes of this law. They seem to have settled on the, the, the idea that if you are one quarter Indian blood, you are Indian. And more than that, it kind of depends. So you don't even know whether you're going to be an Indian or not until you get before the court. So what the hell does it mean to have one quarter Indian blood? Is it like the blood in my leg is Indian, but the blood in my... you know? But but yeah, no, on a serious like, note, is it, it means you know doesn't mean one of your doesn't that just kick the can down the road? Because if my grandma self defines as Indian, well then what's the proof that she's Indian? Is it tribal membership or is it again one quarter blood or? So this is actual genetic lineage, and I believe that the way that you would prove that is that 
the, uh, in the 1930s, the government actually did sort of a census of all the Indians and wrote, and for each tribe and wrote them down. And this now creates some problems because there's some people like all census, some people were missed. Yeah, they were right. in the hospital, they were elderly right. and no one bothered. So they didn't get on the rolls. But basically, you know, you have to show through actual genetic lineage. But you know, the, the question you raise is a really interesting one because there is an organization out there called the National Minority Supplier Development Corporation. I think that's the right name, something like that. And some states give them the authority, give this organization the authority to determine who is a member of a minority group. Unlike federal law definitions, they say you have to be one quarter, but they don't define what that means. And it's exactly the issue that you raise. So let's say your grandfather uh, was Juan Lopez and he, and he ident- self-identifies as a Mexican. Other people thought of him as a Mexican, but he was actually only one quarter Mexican. Does that make you one sixteenth? Right, or, or one qualified quarter, or one quarter. Right. right. I don't know yeah. what the answer is. <laughs> and, and all this stuff is, it, it can seem insignificant until you realize how much can depend on whether or not you are in one of these categories. This could be the difference between getting a job and not getting a job, getting a promotion and not getting a promotion, your business, your struggling business getting a, a hugely lucrative contract with a government. That's one reason, at least, why these things become so contentious and, and so important to people to prove that they're one or the other. Okay, so now let's talk about the Black African-American category. So that one, you know, goes back to uh, obviously uh, slavery and so forth and the idea that we didn't really have such a thing in the United States as being biracial right? You're either black or you're white and different states had different criteria for how much black ancestry you had to have. Uh, you mentioned octoroons one eighth or quadroons one quarter. And then a lot of states settled on the one drop rule. If you had any known African ancestry, you were considered to be black. So famously Homer Plessy, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson was only one eighth of African descent and had a Caucasian looking appearance. They chose him as a plaintiff actually purposely to try to show the absurdity of uh, the racial classification so they, they didn't succeed. But so one issue is that we've sort of recreated uh, the one drop rule by since the official definition is anyone who is uh, uh, descended from, uh, of the, some, from the black race of Africa is black. Anyone can identify as black no matter how distant, at least in theory, no matter how distant their African ancestry is and how small percentage of it is as long as they can identify a black African ancestor. So that's kind of weirdness number one. Weirdness number two is we still don't have a multiracial category on the census or on other forms. Originally, you couldn't even check more than one box. Back in 1977, 78, when the official federal classifications were made, the instructions were check one block box only. So if you were a black individ- a person who had one black parent and one white parent, you had to choose one or the other. Back in the 1990s, there was a broad, very popular movement for multiracialism to allow people to identify as such. And the eventual compromise, the traditional civil rights organizations were all against this. They basically didn't want to lose constituents. Uh, the you know a Hispanic group didn't want people to identify as multiracial, not Hispanic, because that gives mm-hmm. them fewer constituents. Mm-hmm. But um, the compromise they reached was that you could check more than one box. So you can now check that you are, when it comes to race, white and African-American or white and Asian or Asian and African-American. The trick though was under the table after this rule was passed, the civil rights groups kept lobbying. And what the result of their lobbying was that while you could check whichever boxes you want, the government then aggregates the data by one race. So if you check on employment form, you're black and white, or, or if your kids are in school, and you check that the kid is black and white, 
instructions to the agency that are to just put that kid down as black. So even people who sell, right, so there, there's like a there's like a rock paper scissors logic of like black trumps Asian and Asian trumps something like that. White, yes. So yeah. the sort of more distinct or historically oppressed group you belong to that trumps the other groups. But you know, this is again for political reasons. I mean, I said. People want to retain their constituents is also in voting rights litigation, educational litigation. If you're suing for discrimination, you want to have the highest number of people of that group for the baseline. If you're saying, well, we know that there's a voting rights problem going on because Mm. only 10% of the voters are black, but 20% of the residents, you don't want some of that 20% now identifying as multiracial because that Mm. lowers the baseline for your litigation. So there's legal incentives also to try to retain as many people. Obviously, I think discouraging people from asserting a multiracial identity is more likely to preserve and exacerbate racial division than allowing people to consider themselves to be multi-ethnic or multiracial and identifying on forms as such. It's interesting because I grew up in a town that was... Montclair, New Jersey, I, I find a lot of people actually know about it. It's a town that was whose reputation attracts mixed race couples and gay couples, especially before, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, when both of those things were somewhat less accepted than they are now. And a reputation for attracting those couples. And as a result, there were a lot of biracial kids. And I found growing up before I was aware of the wider national conversation about race that biracial was a fairly common identity. Like it was um, the one drop rule didn't seem to hold among the kids I grew up around because it was very open. If you had one white parent, one black parent, actually my best friend was biracial. And I thought, I think I thought of him as biracial. I definitely didn't think of him as either white or black. And, um, but I'm finding, found as I grew older, by the time I was 17 or 18, you know, like eight years ago, the biracial identity had with most kids has sort of given way to just a black identity. And um, I found that interesting. And, and in my studying this issue, I've looked back at the rates of African-Americans in the past, in the distant past, sort of passing for white. Passing for white, which means if you're light-skinned enough as a black person, simply beginning to identify as white on a census or socially or in some other way so as to escape the fate of, of Jim Crow, right? This was a very common thing in the 19th century and the early 20th century. And there have been actually two, I think two different studies I know of that have tried to measure the number of people born black that became white at some point. And I don't remember the percentage off the top of my head, but it's high, right? It's not like 2% of people tried to pass as white. It was like much higher, like 10 or maybe 20 or something like that. And that's understandable because there was such a huge incentive to be seen as white by the wider society. You would just have all of society open up to you, jobs open up to you, neighborhoods open up to you, property open up to you. And um, But to me, one of the signals of progress has been that I don't think I know a single person with parents of both races, white and black, who identifies as white. And in fact, I think I would go so far as to say, and this is my controversial take, is that insofar as you're a light-skinned black person with one parent of each race, it makes more sense to identify socially and officially as black because of how many programs exist in the nation where you will be prioritized. You will be given a leg up in college admissions and various jobs. Like who in their right mind with an ounce of 
normal self-interest would choose to identify as white if given the choice nowadays. So that's how I think of it, at least. Yeah, and that um, actually goes to one reason why these classifications tend to be so broad is that it never really occurred to people 50 years ago or 70 years ago that there'd be an incentive to not identify as, as a member of the minority group, right? They, they assumed, I mean, I would say, sure, there was affirmative action in the 1970s, but at that time, the incentive still overall, given the level of discrimination, racism in society, would have been to not go out of your way to consider yourself uh, Black or American Indian or whatever if you could appear to be otherwise. But, you know, one related issue, which is kind of interesting, and it relates to all ethnic groups, is that historically speaking, being a member of the general sort of Northern European Protestant group was the most socially, economically, educationally desirable. So whenever we do studies on the progress of how well a minority group is doing or has done historically, we always underestimate how much success individual members of that group have found because the more successful members of the group historically were the ones who were more likely to be able to quote unquote get away with socially mm. portraying themselves as, as members of that elite. And it's not just a black white thing. Like, so very few people who have Hispanic ancestry, it's kind of like less than 20% of people who have Hispanic ancestry going back five generations consider themselves Hispanic at all. In the United States, people who have one non Hispanic white parent and one Hispanic parent usually don't consider, usually don't identify as Hispanic, except maybe when they're trying to get affirmative action benefits. But, you know, if you're just asking a survey with no benefit, and, you know, you could say the same thing about, not true nowadays, but certainly uh, for Jewish people in the past, if you were a successful Jewish person, uh, you married, you know, the Christian girl you met at Harvard, converted to Christianity, or at least didn't prevent your wife from raising your kids Christian, and the Jewish uh, aspect of your family identity kind of went away, like the Salzberger family that owns the New York Times would be a good example of that. So, and then if you have, but then the, how, how do you measure the progress of groups over time? You look at the, whatever statistics you had from 80 years ago or 100 years ago or 50 years ago, and then you ask people to say, what do you identify as? What's your education? What's your economic status? But if the top part of that group is sort of no longer identifies, their descendants no longer identify, you're missing the fact that those individuals actually did well economically and successfully integrated into the, I don't want to call it the mainstream, but successfully integrated to what was at least at the time considered the more elite part of society. Yeah. So um, speaking of Hispanic, let's deal with that category. And I think it is, I, I imagine you'll agree it is of all the illogical, arbitrary, insane categories, it just completely takes the cake. So why don't you talk about this, you know, with reference to the problem of Spain being a European country and Portugal and Brazil and, you know, non-Spanish speakers from Spain and and, and all the rest. What What yeah, is this Hispanic category all about? Is it race or ethnicity? So it is officially an ethnicity. The, actually, the Hispanic groups, the Mexican-American groups primarily uh, back in the 70s, didn't, I'm not 100% sure why, um, but they did not want it to be a race. They rejected attempts to racify, if you will, the uh, Hispanic classification. They said, no, we're an ethnicity and we want to be considered such. My best guess is that they thought if it became a racial category, it would then be limited to people who were actually non-primarily European in origin because people say, wait a second, you can't be, what, what do you mean, like a Cuban-American whose ancestors came from Spain or Ted Cruz or something? What do you mean that he's 
member of a different race. It doesn't make any sense. So it would limit the overall constituency. But in any event, we originally on the census had all Latino groups and the Spanish were, were considered white. Again, as I mentioned, Puerto Ricans and, and Mexican Americans eventually were often treated separately in civil rights legislation. And they were an emerging political constituency that both parties were sort of cultivating and they had to figure out how to deal with them, how to enforce civil rights laws that would protect them, uh, what to do about them on the census. And literally, as I mentioned, all different federal sub-agencies had different ideas as to what to do. I, one thing that I usually forget to mention, but I'll mention now, there was actually a Mexican-American congressman who got a law passed in 1976, Congressman Royball, that required the government to come up with a specific multinational, multi-regional Hispanic classification for people from Spanish-speaking countries. So in any event, the way the government actually came up with the Hispanic classification was, well, you might think, oh, well, they consulted experts on anthropology and, and genetics and culture and so forth, and with various political lobbying groups putting in uh, their own two cents. But in fact, really bizarrely, what they did is they asked for volunteers. They said, we need one Puerto Rican American, one Cuban American, and one Mexican-American within the federal bureaucracy to volunteer to be on this committee to help decide what the classification will be. It took three people. They sent a room together, you know, once every week or so, you know, for a few months. They argued. One person wanted them to be called Hispanos. One said Latino. Maybe we should call them something else, you know. And eventually there was one woman who was from Puerto, who was, uh, I believe, a Puerto Rican-American woman. She may have been Cuban. I'm now forgetting. But there was an interview with her in the Washington Post a while back, and she's at least from her account of what happened, she was very insistent that it all go back to Spain and therefore Hispanic was the right classification, which was very controversial, actually, among Mexican-American groups because the Chicano activists, right, the whole idea of calling yourself Chicano rather than Mexican-American was to emphasize your indigenous heritage. And the Mm -hmm. Spanish were the oppressors of the indigenous people. So here all of a sudden, of course, in Latin America, I think most of us know those who are European descended tend to form the elite they tend to have a fair amount of, I, mean, I lived in Peru for five months. They really kind of look down on the uh, people with indigenous, primarily indigenous looks or background and so forth. So it's weird that you have this situation now where people who are sort of the racist elite in their own countries, if they come to the United States, they become members of underrepresented minority groups. So it's controversial, but they basically said, okay, it all goes back to Spain. So anyone of Spanish who's of Spanish language and culture is considered Hispanic in the way that's been enforced in practice, that if your ancestors come from a Spanish-speaking country... So uh, no one called themselves Hispanic at the time, really. It was a, a, we talk about Hispanic literature, which would be like Cervantes or something. It wasn't, it wasn't mm-hmm. a person. The classification became Hispanic. It does apply to people from Spain. It does not apply to the Portuguese because they're not from of Hispanic background. It does not apply to Brazilians. So Brazilians are often considered to be Latinos. And the classification now is officially the Hispanic Latino category, but they didn't change the definition. So Brazilians officially don't count. Now, there are some federal agencies that have diverged from the mainstream definition do include Brazilians and sometimes Portuguese, but the widespread classifications like when you apply for college or a mortgage and you, and you click it off, you're not supposed to check off that you're Hispanic. Now, why? So we have a lot of different absurdities in the Latino, sorry, Hispanic category, some of which you mentioned, one of which is that these the people from these countries don't think of themselves. You go to Latin America, no one calls themselves. Hispanic or Latino, we're Argentine, we're Mexican, we're whatever. And often these countries fought wars with each other. They don't really like each other. Again, I lived in Peru. They have a historical rivalry with Argentina, with Bolivia. If you told a Peruvian, oh, you're just the same as a Bolivian because you're all both Hispanic, they would think you're crazy if they might punch you. 
there's <laughs> Bamud, and so forth. So there's that. And there's this issue of not everyone who's allegedly Hispanic is of actual Spanish-speaking origin because there are Basque speakers in Spain, Catalan speakers in Spain, people who speak various indigenous languages in various parts of South America who've never spoken Spanish as a first language or maybe not at all. They come to the United States, but because they're from Mexico, let's say, and they're now Hispanic, you say, well, why isn't a Mexican Indian or indigenous person an American Indian? Because the classification of American Indian is limited to North American Indians. And again, this is lobbying on the part of American Indian groups. They do not want to share the resources of the Bureau of Indian Affairs with other people. So you have this weird situation where in the United States, you could be like one 5,238th Indian by descent and be a member of the Cherokee tribe. So no one's going to question that you're Indian. You could be 100% indigenous Mexican and not be Indian. You're Hispanic. So that, you know, and of course, um, people of Hispanic descent could be of any race. They could be European origin. They could be African origin. They could be indigenous, even Asian. The biggest supermarket in Peru is Wang's, founded by a Chinese immigrant. And it doesn't really make much sense to classify all these people together. Americans of who are considered Hispanic, unlike Asians, do overwhelmingly accept Hispanic or Latino as an identity, in part because Univision, the big Mm -hmm. media corporation, has really pushed that for the last 50 years to get a national media audience. But now, even Hispanics, if you ask them in public opinion surveys and so forth, what do you consider your identity to be primarily ethnically? They will generally say Guatemalan American, Mexican American, whatever their national origin. Sometimes they'll say just American. They rare, most of them do not consider a Hispanic to be their primary identity. And, you know, unlike I think maybe some other groups, a lot of Hispanic Americans don't spend a lot of time thinking about their Hispanicness because like other immigrant groups, they often have other identities that aren't directly related to uh, their ethnicity. So they may be very Catholic. There's a huge, especially in Texas, there are a lot of uh, very active evangelical Christians who are Hispanics. They may think of themselves as being, that's my, you know, my primary identity is my uh, Christian faith and so forth. And then there are people from New Mexico who are descended of the Spanish conquistadors who they don't want to be associated at all with uh, you know, more recent uh, multiracial immigrants from, from Latin America. And then the kicker to all of this is that is the only one of these five categories we've talked about that is an ethnicity rather than a quote unquote race. Any program, almost any program designed to aid racial minorities, whether that be affirmative action in college admissions or set asides for minorities or diversity and inclusion programs, the vast majority of them include Hispanic as counting as a racial minority. And even though Hispanic is like you can be a completely white Hispanic, a completely black Hispanic. You can be an Indian, which is to say Native American Hispanic. So you can be any of those three and then still actually count as a racial minority in many cases simply because you're Hispanic. Yeah, um, it's officially, like I said, an ethnic minority. And I apologize for my phone ringing here in the background. Um, The... But why, you know, for affirmative action purposes, I think, you know, back in the day, you know, back in 1970, when affirmative action was getting underway, uh, there were a lot more African-Americans in the United States than there were Hispanic-Americans. And African-Americans were still like more, you know, subject to a lot more um, dislike, let's say, by the general population than Hispanics. So I think African-American groups saw Hispanics as potential allies, right? So instead of these being purely black programs, they'll be for all these other racial groups as well who are underrepresented and they will also align with us politically. And no one really anticipated that 50 years later, 
that the Hispanic population would be 50% or so higher than the African-American population. And, you know, a lot of the, we talk about affirmative action in college admissions, where colleges do give different levels of preference to different groups. And if they want to, they can favor African-Americans more than Hispanics, and they generally do according to the statistics. But in government contracting, where there's a lot of money involved, all designated official minority groups get exactly the same preference. So it makes absolutely no difference when you're applying for an SBA loan or our transportation contract, whether your ancestors were slaves and sharecroppers in rural Mississippi, or whether you're, uh, you yourself are an immigrant who came from India or uh, Chile eight years ago and became a citizen, you get exactly the same preference. As a result, if you go back to the history, a lot of these set-aside or favor, you know, other affirmative action programs in the federal government and state governments were really specifically meant for it to help African-Americans. It was like, okay, African-Americans have been redlined, they've been discriminated against, they've been excluded, they've had lack of access to bank capital. So we're going to give them a leg up to try to, you know, ensure their, that African-American nascent businesses are able to compete on an equal footing with group, with whites who had historically uh, had all these advantages. But now, I mean, it's hard to get good, it's impossible to get good statistics on this. I, it was not really the focus. My book isn't about affirmative action, so I didn't bother with FOIA and all that. But I did have some friends in the government who said, I know people in the Department of Transportation. I will ask them if they could give us the statistics of what percentage of affirmative action contracts and whatnot are going to different minority groups. And because under the assumption that it'll be a lot fewer going to African Americans than you would expect. And certainly that were expected when they, devise the programs. And the word I got back a few weeks later was, I spoke to a whole bunch of people. They said, no one will ever release these statistics unless they're forced to. It'd be incredibly embarrassing. Yeah. So they do enough to know they're embarrassing, but I'd be surprised if even 20% of set-asides or contracts where there's favoritism towards minorities, the official minorities go to African-American applicants. After all, to apply for one of these contracts, you already have to have a reasonably successful business, or mm-hmm. you have to have employees, you have to be able to show that you could actually do the business. And so it seems to be obvious that someone who's like upper middle class engineer from India who goes to Stanford, uh, gets his PhDs and works for a few years at Google is more likely to be able to get this contract than someone who is, you know, is um, of a lesser, you know, has a, is less likely to have that sort of educational economic background. And again, Indian Americans are the wealthiest group. African Americans are still among the least, less educationally and economically successful. So they're going to be in less of a position to apply for the contracts to begin with, yet everyone gets the same preference. This seems to me one of those rare race-related issues where people on the right and the left would object to this policy, or at least to its implementation. On the left, because so, for example, in your book, you cite a case where I think in Washington, D.C., you say 90% of the government contracts awarded to quote-unquote minority business owners over some time span was awarded to a Portuguese company, a company owned by a European Portuguese guy. In a I think city. it was three brothers who own like interconnected companies from Portugal. Right. So 90% of lucrative you know, government contracts meant to give give to minority business owners in a city that is heavily black, DC, are given to these essentially European guys. And someone on the left sees that and thinks, oh, well, those white interlopers taking advantage of a program designed to benefit black people. Someone on the right may see that and and say, well, this is the inevitable result of race-based policies and we should 
just have a race neutral state and would both object to the same, same problems, maybe for different reasons, which brings me to a question I had running in my mind while reading your book, which is, so how do you view this? Do you view all of these arbitrary categories and insane, irrational definitions, which lead to absurd court cases and total injustices of lumping poor ethnicities in with rich Asian ethnicities and this whole complex and matrix of clearly unjust and unfair results caused by these racial categorizations. Do you view this as something that can be fixed? In other words, is this is it just a matter of getting the categories right, making sure that Portuguese guy doesn't get the set asides, making sure all the definitions, you know, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And then once we finally do that, the whole scheme of racial apportionment will make sense and line up with our intuitive notions of justice? Or do you think that the project is inherently doomed and all of the insane examples you've given in your book of what you might call identity entrepreneurs and opportunists and unfairness as a result of these policies, that is actually inherent in any racial classification scheme itself? Frankly, I think the only way of doing this in some kind of objective manner, and some, and some of my friends on the left have said, yeah, this is actually what we should do, but we never will, is to actually just basically cut it off at some level of skin color, right? To say that, historically speaking, the Hispanics who get discriminated against are not like Desi Arnaz, but someone who is a dark-skinned, mostly indigenous origin. Uh, with regard to African-Americans, the, if you're African-American, but you look white, you're probably not facing the same kind of Af- discrimination. African-American heritage, but you look white, you're probably not facing the same kind of discrimination as someone who really looks African and so forth and so on. In Brazil, they actually do this, uh, which is that they uh, have affirmative action now in Brazil, and they actually send guidance to uh, university administrators, government HR people who are hiring based on, you know, with race in mind, and they actually say, here's the skin tones to look at. Yeah. Uh, here's how you tell whether someone is really African looking. You look at this kind of uh, hair, you know, all this stuff. And I read this and like, <laughs> I just can't imagine this would ever fly in the United States uh, for good reason. And by the way, I, I know of one case, at least from Yasha Monk's book, who I just had on my podcast, of a woman who was convicted of racial fraud for not looking black enough when she applied for a black program. Though she, you know, in the U.S. probably would have passed for black. Yeah, so I think, you know, Americans are really squeamish about this sort of thing, I think, for good reason, right? We don't really want the government looking at how thick your hair is, you know, your hair. Right, I mean, it seems like just like one step away from getting out the skull measurers and like the... Exactly. So I don't think we're going to do that. And I don't think, you know, the the thing that makes me pessimistic about any kind of real reform here is that my book doesn't talk that much about comparative affirmative action or comparative racial classification. But my understanding from what I have read about that is that in countries that have instituted any sorts of preferences, be they caste preferences in India or race preferences in places like Brazil, the categories always just keep expanding for obvious political reasons, right? If we cut you, if we cut off Things that, well, you have to have one quarter Indian blood and the people with one eighth Indian blood are going to then lobby to be included. Uh, it's hard and it's hard to come up with a good reason why you have this arbitrary cutoff. Or if we're going to have the untouchables eligible, well, why should the task just above the untouchables uh, also be included? So what I suggest in the book, and this is, you know, you mentioned that the left would be uncomfortable with a lot of, with a lot of what's going on, which is true. I was, I thought when I started 
researching and planning this book a couple of years ago, and the left was going to hate it. And not because they would, the book is not polemical. And um, there's nothing inherently that I think a, a person on the left would dislike. But my impression over the years has been that people on the left understand that affirmative action preferences have been pretty unpopular across the board for the last 50 years. They've been saved because the elite universities and corporations and political actors want them anyway, but they're always been in danger of going down politically by referendum, they're going down legally from the courts. And they, anytime you, if you question what's going on, that you might be pulling that thread that unravels the whole thing. But I think in the last couple of years, it's kind of interesting since I started, I think precisely because African-Americans have become so outnumbered by other members of other minority groups that there's been this move to say, hey, wait a second, maybe we should talk more about African-Americans and American Indians rather than just all people of color. Like what is someone who just immigrated here from Vietnam or, or Cambodia or Mexico? Why do they get special treatment relative to people whose ancestors were subject to state and private oppression for 300 years? And that's how we got the phrase BIPOC, right? Which is sort mm -hmm. of kind of extremely popular on the left, black, indigenous, people of color. It's not really clear if it means and other people of color or other people of color or who just are people of color. Right? It's a different way. Whatever it is, it means that we're considering Black and Indigenous Americans more, their concerns more closely than other minority groups. There's also, just as I was finishing the book, I came across a phrase that was new to me or a term that was new to me, ADOS, American descendants mm -hmm. of slaves, that we should differentiate people whose ancestors have been in the U.S. for 300 years against subject oppression from people who are voluntary immigrants, in particular because these voluntary immigrants, their children and grandchildren, are in fact taking up, you know, the Barack Obamas and Kamala Harris's of the world are, are much more likely, like by a huge percentage, to be accepted to places like Harvard uh, and yeah. so forth than are uh, people who are descended from sharecroppers and so forth in the United States. So one thing I suggest in the book that would, you know, I don't like racial classification. I think they're dangerous politically and morally for a variety of reasons. but there is a precedent in American law where the U.S. government has said, I mentioned we have all these Indian preferences, The Indian preferences, at least to the extent they're based on like tribal membership, are not racial classifications, but political, based on the political relationship the Indian uh -huh. tribes have with the U.S. government. So similarly, if we want to have certain kinds of affirmative action purposes for remediation, for redress, for historical, try to um, overcome historical legacies of oppression, we could limit things to what I consider non-racial classifications, which would be ADOS, which is not racial because if you're black and from Kenya, you're not ADOS. So it's not, it correlates with race, but it's not racial per se. And, you know, Native American, there's so many people like Elizabeth Warren, uh, they want to have either vague or uncertain American Indian ancestry. They don't really have any cultural connections with Indian tribes. The people who really have suffered the most for being Native American are the ones who live on Indian reservations. So, and again, that would be a non-racial well, which is which is actually part of the dispensation that's been given to them as an attempt to help, quote unquote. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, obviously they were better off being put in reservations than being massacred by settlers or the army. But we also know that uh, the reservations wound up they wound up often getting the worst land in desolate places and being neglected in various ways by the government. So, and there's a lot of tremendous amount of poverty on many of the traditional reservations, not the ones that, you know, some of the ones that have casinos are not even real Indian tribes, frankly. They were Indian tribes created for political reasons by people who may not even have any Indian ancestry, but 
you know, I've been to the uh, Navajo Reservation and among others. And, you know, these are not the most pleasant places to grow up. They're isolated. They're rural. People Mm -hmm. still sometimes don't have outdoor plumbing. The schools are bad. There's high rates of alcoholism. You don't have to limit programs to such people. I mean, one of the least well-off definable groups in the U.S. are white Appalachians who have very low average incomes, who have very high rates of substance abuse. You could, I don't know how you, so I'm not saying these are the only groups that uh, have significant, significantly worse socioeconomic indicators in the mainstream. But in the case of Native Americans on reservations, American descent of slaves, we can actually trace specifically that there were government policies ranging from slavery to Jim Crow to Failure, you know, government looking the other way when there was internal violence in black communities, not policing the communities properly. When they did mm-hmm. police communities, often engaging in gratuitous violence and so forth. And you can say, okay, those people were not helping them because of their race as such. Not everyone who happens to have dark skin or of African origins is going to benefit, but people who we could precisely trace their, um, or as precisely as possible, trace their ancestry to people who were disadvantaged by essentially like a cartel, a white supremacist cartel involved the interlocking legal system, economic system, social pressure, and so forth that we've only started to break in the last 50 years. Now, would I say that there's no dangers in that system? There's still some dangers, but I say I necessarily support all the current policies that would be applied like in the University of Michigan, not necessarily. But I think if you're going to have preferences, you have to say, well, what are these preferences for? If the preferences are for diversity, as the Supreme Court has said, they don't make any sense because your first Vietnamese student doesn't count nearly as much, if at all, as your 2,000th Mexican-American student. So what's diverse about that? If it's about redress of historical exclusion, there's a much better case for, again, Native Americans on reservations, African-American descendants of slaves, than there is for someone whose ancestors voluntarily immigrated here from Guatemala 12 years ago. Yeah, I mean... To me, all of this seems like uh, an advertisement for the a race neutral state to me that because you know so every time you create an incentive to be an X right by creating a preference for some identity, you're going and and you know we see that you get a brutal fight over the boundary line of that, and you also get you actually incentivize people to be that thing. So one thing I've, I feel is that identity is, you know, we think of it as a fixed thing. You're just born what you're born. And the question is, what category are you? But the truth is, you know, in America, tens and tens of millions of people have enormous latitude in how they can identify. You know, in, in my case, I could be either black or Hispanic. And all the incentives in America would be for me to check the black box. And that has not been lost on me my whole life. And it's not lost on anyone else that exists on the boundary lines of these artificial categories. And um, so, you know, the moment, you know, ADOS, which I'm very familiar with, the moment they want to make that distinction, they're going to get a lot of people on the boundary line fighting to be included in that ADOS category insofar as that becomes important. And the same for Hispanic. And, and you know, it, it, even if we were to implement a system like the color-based system that you, you didn't really suggest, but that you sort of mentioned might be more objective, then you're going to get enormous resistance from the lighter-skinned Black individuals that would no longer have privileges under such a system. And 
like every single way of slicing it runs into the fact that the lines are not, that these are not natural categories and there's so much overlap and that all human beings, my working theory is that all human beings are to some degree self-interested, which I think is um, pretty fair, (laughs) pretty borne out every day. It inevitably, any race-based regime of preferences or, or anything, it just inevitably becomes so disconnected from any concept of justice or you know, redistribution that we, any redistributive or justice-based goals that we may have had at the beginning of going into the enterprise, that it inevitably becomes so disconnected that it's actually not, it's probably just the wrong paradigm to introduce. And it it seems to me like an advertisement for those other countries that simply say, we're not going to count. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to that. And, um, only the downside of the countries that don't count at all is that there is the problem that they do potentially neglect certain social problems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, France doesn't count, so they don't have that particular cleavage. On the other hand, it turns out that they're, that when they had massive North African immigration in the 50s and 60s, a lot of these immigrants wound up facing a lot of discrimination, living in what they, you know, suburbs, but there the suburbs are not nice. They're mm-hmm. considered like the, the bad places to live and having bad schools and, this cleavage has happened in society anyway, but no one was sort of paying attention because you weren't allowed to talk about it. Or even then some of these same immigrants have brought anti-Semitic attitudes with them from uh, North Africa and from their culture. And when Jews were being attacked in the 2000s, it took a long time for the French government to respond, not so much because of anti-Semitism, but because they needed to pretend that since we're all just Frenchmen and there's no cleavages among us, that it was just Frenchmen being attacked randomly. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are, you know, there's, right. there, so I understand why, you know, so we may need some sort of classifications just to enforce the civil rights laws and so forth. But I generally agree with your point. I didn't coin the phrase, but I want to popularize the phrase uh, in my book, the separation of race and state. I yeah, think I really we should like have the separation of race and state for the same reasons as church and state. And we know that historically there have been massacres, wars, horrible tensions uh, in society because of people's religious differences. And when the state steps in and is seen as a way of favoring one over the other, uh, the competition for those government resources just leads to horrific outcomes. I would add that, you know, I think there was, I don't think we recognize this, but there was, I think, a moment in the post-civil rights period, like in the 60s and 70s, where we could have gone more towards de-emphasizing white identity. Because again, a lot of the emerging ethnic groups that had faced discrimination, uh, the Poles and Italians and Jews and Greeks and so forth, well, I mean, they, they, they consider themselves white, but it wasn't necessarily a primary identity. They also felt that they had faced historical discrimination. But in order to create these statistics and classifications, we made everyone consider themselves check off just the white box. Now, I was stunned when I looked into this to discover that there is a whole coterie of academics out there who actually want to encourage everyone European background to think of themselves as a white person, not as an American not as an Italian-American, not as a multi-ethnic American, but as a white person. Why? Because once they recognize their white identity, they'll recognize their white privilege. And then once they recognize their white privilege, they will then join the uh, forces that want to eliminate white privilege and will all live happily ever after. And this strikes me as completely insane that telling people to identify uh, with an identity that was historically and still is associated with the people who were oppressing the minority group is going to be in the long run a good thing, especially thinking that then they're going to sacrifice their self-interest. And 
it's not just that I think this is insane. I then looked at some public opinion data and political science data. And the more someone identifies with being white, someone of European origin, the more likely they are, surprise, surprise, to actually be racist. Mm. And also not surprisingly, a lot of these people formed the uh, core of uh, Trump supporters in the various elections and, you know, in, in particular were supportive of Trump because they thought of him as being on the side of what we now call white nationalism. So this idea that somehow it's actually a good thing to encourage, say, me to think of myself as I'm a white guy rather than as a Jewish guy or, or as a um, just American or as a fan of uh, horror movies, whoever else I might be, that just strikes me as incredibly naive and contrary to all human experience, and what we're going to do is get you know encourage people to identify as a member of the majority group, and then they will sacrifice their self-interest as members of the majority group to help the minority group. Is there if there's any historical example where that's lasted for any length of time? I'm not aware of that. Yeah, <laughs> no, it is amazing. It occurs to me white is the only category I think we didn't explicitly address the arbitrariness of. Um, I mean, there's. The notion that someone from Ireland and someone from Kazakhstan are in the same category and should be treated the same from a legal point of view, you know, like an, an or an Arab from Egypt, the guy outside my apartment serving halal in a halal cart uh, with a thick Arab accent from Yemen is in the same category as, as my Irish friend. And they're both white and they have white privilege, and they're treated the same vis-a-vis universities, the federal government jobs, and the whole entire racial scheme of American politics is crazy. And yet we don't laugh at the word white like we laugh at the notion of octoroon or quadroon or, or, or whatever. And it disturbed me eventually. I was right. I was finishing the book, and I said, you know, I've talked about the absurdity of the Asian-American classification and the Hispanic classification. And it's not quite absurdity, but all the boundary issues and other problems with the African-American classification. And I have a whole chapter in Native Americans. And I neglected, at first, I mean, I added it at the end because I thought about it, but I neglected, you know, why am I thinking that white's a natural category? It's just as crazy as uh, the rest of these. I actually quote someone who says that the government created sort of this pseudo race, right? What anthropologically, sociologically, religiously, culturally, looks-wise, does someone from Iceland have with someone from Morocco or someone, uh, and what do they have in common with uh, someone from Armenia? I mean, it's, it really for, for is that also- matter, Jews. I mean, it's very difficult to make sense of the history of Jewish persecution if Jews are white. Sure. I mean, you know, I'm a Jewish person myself, and I think that, you know, we, most of us, rec- uh, Ashkenazi Jews, at least recognize that we've always been treated on the one hand as white people, vis-a-vis black people, but on the other hand, not, uh-huh. you know, also, but- yeah, that's not the cleavage that we have, right? I mean, uh, I mean, there, there are unfortunately a lot of otherwise well-educated people who think that the whole world is somehow divided in the exact same way as the Jim Crow South. But, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that Jews have been historically considered to be killers of the Christian God really has nothing to do with what color we are. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So I guess I've, I've reached the end of the questions I have right now, but haven't even scratched the surface of the questions that this topic provokes. And I really hope that my listeners check out your book. The title is Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. And like I said, it was a pleasure to read. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And before I let you go, can you let my listeners know where they can follow your work in general? Do you have a website, a Twitter handle, anything like this? Sure. Thanks, Coleman. I have a Twitter handle. It's at Prof D. Bernstein, 
D-B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. I blog. I'm part of two uh, group blogs. One is instapundit.com, where I blog occasionally, more often at uh, volok.com, V-O-L-O-K-H.com, which is a law professor's blog. And if particular if you're interested in law and public policy, it is uh, the most popular law professor's blog out there. And we do have uh, Really, really, some really interesting contributors. And the book, of course, is available classified at uh, Amazon and hopefully some retailers also. Excellent. Thank you so much, David. Thank you so much also for having me. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.